What do you think is the greatest obstacle in your life to worshiping God? Greatest obstacle. Some of you might say just the challenges of getting to church each week. From busy schedules and work shifts and sleeping in and sicknesses and snowstorms. Some of you might say uncooperative family members hinder you from worship. Whether that be someone you fought with on the way here or you tried to drag here with you or just getting little kids out the door can be crazy. Some of you might say the biggest obstacle to worship is distraction. From ringing phones to wiggly kids to thinking about the Super Bowl instead. Or maybe the music doesn't sound great or there are technical difficulties. Some of you might feel your greatest hindrance is anxiety or depression that that makes you not want to engage if you even show up at all. Or you might say that apathy is the big issue. You just don't feel like it. Or that you have a fear of man, worried about what other people around you think of you. I'd like to suggest to you today that while all these things may indeed be challenges, your biggest obstacle to worship is not any of the above. The most significant obstacle for every one of us is our own hearts. Our own hearts. A lot of the other hindrances that I mentioned would be symptoms of a heart issue. But there is a a constant war inside of us over worship. Will we praise God? Will we thank Him? Will we sing or pray? Will we mean it? And will we give sacrificially? Will we listen obediently? Will we worship? Remember what John Calvin said about our hearts. They are idle factories. Churning out rival affections and alternative gods. Bob Coughlin puts it this way, that each one of us has a battle raging within us over what we love most. God or something else. Whenever we love and serve anything in place of God, we're engaging in idolatry. One of the most striking indictments in Scripture is from the prophet Isaiah, and it's repeated by Jesus, which says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So, if our hearts are far from God, it completely devalues our worship. And I don't know about you, but I desperately want to avoid this ever being true of me. I don't want to just give lip service to God. I want to give him worship from the heart. And I hope that you feel the same. Regardless, I hope to inspire this heart worship in all of us today by taking us to God's word. Which you can open up with me to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Continuing our series today on what it means to worship God, the ultimate purpose of our lives and the first priority of our church. We've seen so far how we can only worship in spirit and truth through the gospel, through what Jesus has done for us to pave the way for us to worship. And then we saw how our worship needs to be shaped by God's word. 
what it says, and that it really should take place primarily in the community of God's people. Now I want to show how true worship must be more than just mere words or actions, but it has to come from our hearts. Psalm 111 is a a song full of joyful thanksgiving and praise. On the other side of the spectrum from last week's psalms, which were laments. It is also a song full of God's character or, and deeds in ten short verses. God is praised as provider, covenant keeper, deliverer, king, and redeemer, as well as being majestic, righteous, gracious, merciful, powerful, faithful, just, trustworthy, holy, and awesome. <laughs> and I want to take us here because... I think we often have the wrong starting point for our worship. You might think of a worship leader encouraging you to to sing it from the heart. But we shouldn't worship from our hearts just because it's what we should do or because someone tells us to. No, we should worship from our hearts because God is so great. It would be better, instead of just saying, you know, sing it from the heart or worship from the heart, that we encourage one another with, see who God is. Look at God. And as we do this, we'll just naturally worship from our hearts. Look how Psalm 111 starts. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So, notice the psalmist does make a personal commitment right away. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. But is that where he starts? No. He starts, praise the Lord. And that's also where he continues. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. He doesn't go, you know, I'll give thanks to God with all my heart, so I'm going to pursue these emotional experiences that really move me. Or I'll turn the music up louder. Or belt the song out louder. Or I'll close my eyes and really focus on how I'm supposed to feel. Or, or fog machines and lasers. Like, that'll get me thankful. <laughs> no, he says, I'll worship with my whole heart. Great are God's works. Did you get the flow there? He doesn't start with our work. He starts with God's worth and his work. And I think that's the, the main message from this verse, and really from the whole psalm, that God deserves worship from our whole hearts. We should worship God with our whole hearts because he deserves it. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And before we go further, I should probably clarify what I mean by our hearts. Because I'm, I'm not talking about the heart that's pumping blood in your body. In the Bible, when it talks about our hearts... It's talking about the center of someone's being, the invisible inner you. Your heart is the, the moral, the emotional, volitional, spiritual center of who you are. So when it says to worship or give thanks with a whole heart, or all my heart in other versions, it means to worship God with everything you are on the inside. 
right? If you think about what that, what that would include, it means your mind and your thoughts and your intellect and emotions, passions, feelings, morality, motives, will, affections, love, everything inside of us. Our physical bodies are also part of who we are. But, and if we worship with all our hearts, it's going to inevitably affect our bodies. It will mean a physical expression of some form. But today, we're focusing on the inside as that's what controls the outside. The inside controls the outside. And thus, that's why our hearts are what matter most to God. Remember the story of Samuel anointing David to be king in 1 Samuel 16. This was before David became famous by fighting Goliath. God had told Samuel to go find the next king of Israel among the sons of a man named Jesse. And when Samuel arrived, Jesse presented his seven oldest sons to him, one by one. He paraded them in front. Impressive, tall, strong, handsome specimens of men. And Samuel was wowed, right? Uh, Surely, this is the one God had in mind, or this one. But God told him, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You're looking at things all wrong. You're only seeing the surface. I see deeper. And God said, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel had to ask, like, Jesse, you got any other sons? And they ran off to get David, the youngest, least likely candidate, from a human perspective at least. But one who came to be known as a man after God's own heart. Our heart's condition is what matters most to God. And this is, of course, the same in worship. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts once said, The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship if there be no inward adoration, if no devout affection be employed therein. It is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. You might say that if your heart isn't in it, it's not true worship in the first place. Worship is about what or who you love most, or what we love most with our hearts. True worship is really an expression of, of the great commandment, to love God above everything, or with everything. As it said in Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your might. God rightly demands his comprehensive affection from his people. He deserves it. But I want to point out something from Mark 12. When Jesus reinforced that commandment, remember a, a scribe came up to Jesus and asked him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus told him, the most important one, the one that matters more than anything, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he threw in love of neighbor as the second most important. But then the scribe answered back, well, yeah, you're right, Jesus. And listen to what he said. To love the Lord with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength 
and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He said, you've answered wisely. That was a good answer. But notice, to love God with all our heart is greater than what? And all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This was the center of Israel's worship. In other words, what's going on in the center of our beings is more important than all the outward shows or duties of worship that we can perform. It's far greater than that. So you might wonder, if this is so crucial, then how can we be sure that we are worshiping, that we're using our whole hearts? Well, I have a feeling we might make this more complicated than it really is. Do you love Jesus? Like, do you know that you love Jesus? Can you feel an affection for him? Does God have your whole heart? I have a feeling most of us would be able to answer that question. And if he does, like, does this come out of us? Does it, do we express it in, in praise and thanksgiving? If he doesn't, have your whole heart. What's preventing him from having it all? The opposite of a, of a whole heart is a half heart or a divided heart. So what do you love as much or more than you love the Lord? What do you think about most? Talk about most. Talk up the most. Spend the most time on. The most money on. And what do you daydream about? What do you fear losing the most? What, what gets you most excited, either positively or negatively? In all likelihood, these are your go-to idols. They may even be good things, good loves, but they become corrupted if they begin rivaling God in our affections. Tim Keller explains that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you only what, what only God can give. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. The thing is, God is the only thing in the universe or outside the universe that can give us true and lasting significance, security, safety, and fulfillment. And he's the only object of love and worship that will never let us down. But it goes further than that even. He is the only one who deserves our worship. And to give what only God ought to receive to anything else is offensively wrong. We shouldn't just shrug off the idea of idolatry dividing our hearts. And it's like thinking, I'm, I'm not an idol worshiper, I'm good. 
our hearts manufacture idols all the time. We're prone to this. And it is offensive to a holy God. So we must be ruthless at identifying and rooting them out. As an aside here, loving Jesus with everything doesn't prevent you from loving other things. It it actually purifies your love for everything else and keeps it at a healthy level. Bob Coughlin says, we can't love anything in the right way unless we love God more. For example, I believe that I love my wife better, more committedly, more passionately, because I love Jesus more than I love her. Same with my kids, or really anything in life, any blessing. I I can enjoy the many good things in my life in a better, more appropriate way if I love them in light of being a gift from God and be thankful to him for them. But I've got to be vigilant because almost anything can try to supplant God in my heart. However, I'm never going to worship God with my whole heart just because the Bible slaps me on the wrist or shakes your finger saying, idols are bad. (laughs) No, the only way that I'll worship God wholeheartedly is by being captivated by his superior beauty. I have to see how much greater God is than anything else I love or could love. And I think that the rest of this psalm shows us a glimpse of this, a glimpse of God's superiority. So, as well as it gives us some practical ways that we can worship him with our whole hearts. The first thing, God deserves worship from our whole hearts as we give thanks for his great works. Okay, we can worship God with our whole hearts as we give thanks for his great works. Giving thanks comes out right there in verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. But the clear first question is, give thanks for what? Imagine if I sent you a thank you note, but left the inside blank. Maybe I signed my name in it and that's it. Your question would be like, like, what are you thankful for? You might even wonder if I was really thankful at all. So, what should God's people give thanks for? Keep reading. Verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. The works of the Lord can refer to his created works or his acted works. So what he has made or what he has done or both. I think it's both here. But either way, this this verse says we should do two things with God's works. Delight in them and study them. Delight in them and study them. Now, would you say that you delight in God's works. Do you enjoy what he's made? Do you appreciate what he's done? If so, are you drawn to study them? 
to look more closely at them. In a way, this is something that we do every Sunday as we gather, or in our small groups throughout the week, or kids in your Sunday school classes. We dig into his word to learn about all the great things that God has done. And, And look, studying his works should never be a purely intellectual exercise, according to this. It's meant to be an expression of our delight. And should stir our affections for him. Studying his works really should lead us directly back to gratitude. To giving thanks. If you struggle to give thanks, ask yourself what you're filling your mind with. What are you studying in life? And I'm not just talking about school. What are you learning about? What do you spend time learning about? It may be your school subjects or programs, maybe how to excel in your career, music, Instagram or Facebook feeds, sports stats, video games, mindless entertainment. It's not wrong to study other things. But we've got to be really careful about these things, dividing our hearts, or even preventing us from studying the Lord and his ways. Can you answer the question, what works has God done for you? Some of you might Draw a blank there. Some of you might think of a couple things quickly. But, I mean, if we're truly thankful, shouldn't this, these things be on the tips of our tongues constantly? Shouldn't we, we hardly be able to hold back from talking about what God has done? Shouldn't we have a list a mile long of God's great works? If we don't, it just shows that there's a lot of room to grow here in studying the works of the Lord. And it should be a delight to do so. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Give you a a starter list of the great works of the Lord. Think about how he created everything out of nothing by speaking. Or how spectacular creation can be. Full of splendor and majesty, like it says here. Think about how he created us Wonderfully designing us and forming us just the way he wanted to. Think of how patiently he puts up with us, even as we stray far from him. Think about how he forgives us, washes us, purifies us, and transforms our hearts.
Think about how he has saved his people time and time again throughout history, <laughs> using all kinds of things, with arcs and Passovers and split seas and sacrifices and prophets and returns from exile and more. And of course, most vividly and most applicably to us through the, the bloody cross of Christ. Think about all of God's supernatural interventions over the centuries. Especially Jesus' history-altering, life-changing resurrection from the dead. Think about how he saved you. Your salvation is a miracle, and don't you forget it. Think about how his Holy Spirit actually comes in and lives inside of people. Think about how he faithfully provides for our needs on a daily basis. Think about how he's gone far beyond mere sustenance and actually just poured his blessings out on us. Think about how he keeps the universe spinning, sustaining every molecule. And then thank him for this. We need to remember all these things that God has done and more because we get so focused on what we've done instead. How our weeks have gone, what we've accomplished lately, what we're trying to do tomorrow, our goals this year. And that's a perfect recipe for pride and despair, not humble thankfulness. So let's remember, and actually he'll help us remember. You see that in verse 4? He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So us remembering what he's done is actually a grace from God. Without him opening our eyes to what he's done, we'd totally miss them. We'd be oblivious. In the words of Romans 1, we'd be futile in our thinking, foolish in our darkened hearts, and we'd never give thanks to him. So thank God that we can even remember and know his wonderful work. So he doesn't let us forget, and he himself never forgets. Look at verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He remembers his covenant forever. Did he provide for you yesterday? Thank him. Right? Is he providing for your needs today? You notice? Thank him. Will he provide for you tomorrow? Count on it. And thank him. Verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. With the list that I just gave you a moment ago, he has unmistakably done this for us. He has definitely shown us the power of his works. And the example given here is his giving his people an inheritance of nations. He did this temporarily for his people Israel in ancient times. 
But that was really a foreshadowing of the redemption of people from every nation and tongue who would be grafted into Israel and join God's chosen people. And you realize that how great a work of God it is that you are no longer an enemy of his, but that you've been graciously included in an inheritance of nations. An inheritance of the redeemed. And speaking of the redeemed, let's skip down for a minute to verse 9, which speaks of God's greatest work of all. It says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Redemption is a big word that simply refers to buying something back or purchasing freedom. It was used to talk about slaves being freed from captivity or slavery. The person writing this psalm would have been thinking mostly about Israel's deliverance from Egypt when they had been slaves. But we have an even greater redemption than that now through Jesus. Infinitely greater through Jesus who purchased our freedom from sin's penalty and power and the law's demands, paying for our redemption with his blood. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Like This is by far the greatest of all God's works done on our behalf. In Jesus, we see God's righteousness and holiness and justice and mercy and grace all come together in the spectacular display of wisdom and power and love and all of this can be yours today if you'll humble yourself just accept his gift of, of redemption I, I hope that you will put your faith in him if you haven't before and if you need help we would love to help you for those of us who, be, who believe, though, he redeemed us. He's done this. And he's now made a new covenant with us, promising his love for us for all eternity, writing his laws on our hearts. He will always be our God, and we will always be his people. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Look back to verse 7 now. Skipped over this a minute ago. It says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Now there, the focus is on a unique aspect of God's works. His precepts or his commands. Essentially, his word. Did you know that the scriptures are another example of a great work of God? And how we respond to God's word can be an expression of our worship. So, how does this psalm tell us to respond to God and his word? It says in verse 8 that his words are to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. 
I believe that this is another key way that we can show our wholehearted devotion to him. That God deserves worship from our whole hearts as we faithfully follow his word. Okay, we can worship God wholeheartedly as we faithfully follow his word and his ways. Look again, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Does this describe you? Obviously not in a perfect way yet. But can it describe you in a growing way? That you follow God's word with faithfulness and uprightness? And that's the way God designed his word to be obeyed. And so as we gather to worship and we hear God's word, and how we, this is how we should respond, that we listen carefully, that we study diligently, and then by the Spirit's power, obey faithfully. And whenever we don't, to throw ourselves on his mercy again. The only thing that I want to point out here today is that obedience is an outflow of worship. It's like an expression of our love. Like Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So again, do you love Jesus? If so, do you show it by following his word? He may be telling you something today about your life. And prompting you to obey something. And the question for you is now, will you choose to follow and thus glorify him? We already read verse 9. Let's go back to that now. Because I think we see one final way to worship with our whole hearts there. It says, he has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So we've seen that God deserves our worship from our whole hearts because of his works, because of his word, and finally, because of who he is. And God deserves worship from our whole hearts as we are awed by who he is. We can worship God wholeheartedly as we're awed by who he is. I love how the person writing this psalm was just listing out reasons that God is praiseworthy. And eventually he can't hold it in anymore and he just bursts into praise. Holy and awesome is his name. Holy and awesome is his name. When we understand how holy God is and how awesome God is, the only appropriate response is awe. Amazement at who God is and what he's like. For God to be holy means that he is perfect, pure, Righteous, transcendent, holy other than us. It's like holiness is the attribute that makes God, God. For God to be awesome means that he is worthy of awe. 
which should be obvious by now, I hope. Coughlin concludes, How could anyone ever think worshiping God is boring? There is no limit to his holiness, glory, and sovereignty. No end to his riches, wisdom, and righteousness. All his attributes exist together in perfect harmony, perfect balance, perfect cooperation, with no contradiction, no confusion, and no diminishing of their glory forever. He is the source of everything good and beautiful. And he's so wonderfully holy and awesome that it should transform the way that we approach him. Really, we should live in holy fear of him. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have good understanding. The fear of the Lord isn't as much cowering dread as it is awestruck reverence. And fear is commonly used as a synonym for, guess what? Worship. Living in this heart attitude on a a daily basis is how we begin living wisely. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what one scholar calls the key to what life is all about. It's to understand what Romans 11 tells us, that for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. In her book, None Like Him, Jen Wilkin tells the story of visiting Mere Woods in California, which has these enormous redwood trees that have stood for nearly a thousand years. I've been there. It is jaw-dropping in magnificence. There's amazing sights. But she says that she'll never forget another sight she saw as they walked through these woods. Two parents were enjoying the scenery as they walked along, and while their son, eight or nine-year-old son, walked behind them playing a game on an iPad. And she, she said she wasn't judging them because it was probably the only way they could actually enjoy the scenery. But the image was a, is a stunning image of how self-absorbed we can be instead of standing in awe. She goes on to say this. Research shows that when humans experience awe, wonderment at redwoods or rainbows, Rembrandt or Akhmaninoff, we become less individualistic, less self-focused, less materialistic, and more connected to those around us. In marveling at something greater than ourselves, we become more able to reach out to others. At first, this seems counterintuitive, But on closer examination, it begins to sound a lot like the great command. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or marvel at someone greater than yourself. Love your neighbor. Reach out to others. Awe helps us worry less about self-worth by turning our eyes first toward God, then toward others. It also helps establish our self-worth in the best possible way. We understand both our insignificance within creation and our significance to our creator. But 
just like a child on an iPad at the foot of an 800-year-old redwood, we can miss majesty when it is right in front of us. Are we missing what's right in front of us? When we fear God rightly, it changes everything. And it says it's the start of becoming truly wise. I also believe it's the start of true wholehearted worship. Your whole heart will not be engaged until you catch glimpses of your holy God. But when you do, wow. Our God is an awesome God. And as this psalm concludes, his praise endures forever. It will never end. Why is that? That's because God is eternal. And his love endures forever. Which means that we will never run out of reasons to worship. Because it's really all about him who is eternal, who is infinite. Like Matt Redmond's well-known song says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. It's true. And if you are going to worship God from the heart as he deserves you to, then you have to come to the recognition that it is all about him. So praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you awaken our hearts to your glory? Help us be in awe of you every day. Sometimes our senses get dulled by the world around us. We confess that to you. We want to repent to you. We don't want to miss what's right in front of us. So open our eyes. Help us see you. And move us to worship you every day with all we've got. In Jesus' name.